How have being foster parents changed each of you? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Never the same. Yeah, I feel like we are... Um, we were, we died and came back. <laughs> horses before with blinders on. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom to a teen girl. And I'm Rachel, a mentor to foster kids. Today's episode is all about the challenges of foster care. And what can really complicate those challenges is bringing different cultures into your home. It's one thing to appreciate and respect a culture from afar. It's a totally different thing to live with it up close every day in your own home. And you know, Natasha, that's really our childhood firsthand. We grew up with two different parents from two different cultures. Our dad is American, our mother is Persian, and seeing them merge their two cultures together was quite the experience growing up, right? I mean, we saw that in the use of, you know, funny examples for y'all through the use of a microwave, right? Like, you know, Americans, we use it breakfast, lunch, and dinner practically. And in the Persian culture, it's seen as a monster that kills all the nutrients in food. And then, you know, just even the everyday practical life of cleaning products. I always love to tell people this one because I grew up, and you as well, thinking that you cleaned everything with vinegar and water. You just diluted the vinegar and it was good enough for windows, tables. I mean, it kills bacteria. It kills it all. And I remember being in college and seeing my friends buy Windex and Clorox and bleach and all of this other cleaning products. And I was like, well, why don't you just use vinegar and water? (laughs) Yeah, I actually had the same experience um, in college when I first had roommates and they're like, oh, yeah, so let's like split the bill for some cleaning supplies. And I was like, what do you need besides vinegar, water (laughs) and soap, you know? These are some like really funny examples of growing up in a bicultural family, but it can be really challenging when you're mixing cultures on top of the inherent challenges of foster care, such as becoming a parent to a newborn overnight, parenting children with trauma, and even drug addiction, getting a extended family on board with your family. So I'm really excited to introduce our guests today because they've been through all of the challenges I've just mentioned and many more. Ollie is 28 and Brittany is 30, and they're a multiracial couple raising three foster kids who are all siblings between the ages of under two to up to seven years old. And I'm going to let them tell us about their different cultural backgrounds. My cultural background is my dad's white and my mom is from India, um, Hyderabad, India, and some parts of Mumbai as well as, you know, some parts of her family are from that area too. So that's where my multicultural or multi multiracial um, aspects of my background come from. And then Brittany, what, how would you describe your cultural background? So on both my mom and dad's side, very like white European. So I am white, born and raised in Texas and then moved to Colorado. It's interesting because a lot of the members of my family actually have done interracial adoption. They are white couples, but then they have a black child or a Hispanic child. So just kind of neat background, but I'm white. Can you describe your journey to deciding to become foster parents? 
Absolutely. So Ollie and I ended up getting married in 2013 and it was literally the happiest day of our lives. It was so beautiful. And shortly after, you know, probably after a year, maybe a year and a half, we decided, you know, let's, let's start having a family. Um, we bought a house and we thought it's time to, you know, fill it with little kitties. And, you know, we tried for several years and just kind of the natural way didn't work for us. And so we decided to look into a fertility clinic and kind of went that route for a little while. And we're like, you know, let's take a step back and let's look at all of our options before we make any really drastic choices that are going to be really expensive. We wanted to adopt and, you know, grow our family in that way, whether we could have biological kids or not, we thought it would be really special. And that kind of also came from my upbringing with a lot of my cousins being adopted. But we never really gave foster care, I guess, too much of a consideration. We had just heard, you know, the typical horror stories that people talk about. Foster parents are, you know, mean and they're bad people. They only want a paycheck. They just continue the trauma that happens with kids. And so I was like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to be clumped into that category. But as we learned more and more and actually meet some friends that were foster parents themselves and saw their relationships with their kids, we thought maybe this is a really great way for us to be able to kind of dip our feet into parenting. So how does being a mixed race family also impact how you foster parent? Mm, that's, yeah, that's really good. I mean, at first, kind of going into foster care, we thought whatever our kiddos culture and background is, we want to bring that into our daily life. And we want our kids to feel comfortable. Of course, we're Muslim, so we don't want to do things that are against our beliefs, but we want to make our kids feel as comfortable and as at home as possible. Um, So when we were trying to get to know what our kids' culture was, it wasn't really clear. Over time, we've, we've kind of just adapted. I feel like we've pulled in some things that you know, we've learned from them and mostly they've kind of adapted to our culture and beliefs just because what was presented to us from DHS wasn't necessarily safe and it wasn't necessarily just kind of, I don't, I don't even know what the words Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. For example, after a visit, um, the visitation worker would give us things like... Um, some medicine stick and some sage and just some interesting things. And he had to relay the information that he was given from bio dad saying that you need to burn this, you know, on the full moon at midnight and you need to say this sort of prayer over the children before they go to bed. And, you know, it was, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was like, I'm like, I don't know if we're doing black magic here or if, um, if this is your actual, you know, religious beliefs, our little Jay has told us that she's gone to church before, but then other times she'll say she hasn't gone in a while. So I'm like, are you guys, you know, believing in like a monotheistic religion? Or are you believing in more of like some satanic beliefs? Like I, like it was just a little bit of a mix of things. So there was a lot of adapting. Um, little Jay would have a very hard time if we didn't do some of those things that bio dad, you know, said that needed to be done in order for her to have good dreams and to be protected and whatnot. 
So there was a lot of clash, clashing of uh, cultures in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it ended up being practices that really, in all honesty, kind of scared her. And so we, we just kind of slowly stopped doing things. Because originally, like I said, we wanted to do it to honor her culture. But it was really interesting. And it was like some of the things were taken from like beautiful practices from Native American culture, but then were twisted and mixed with just kind of some dark things. So it was, yeah, it was just a little, a little hard at times. Yeah. That, it is interesting because I think foster parenting, right? You're balancing all the time, sort of like your needs and the child's needs. And I think that's one reason why, especially in Denver, foster families burn out within two years, usually. And then in some states it's as little as like several months, because, you know, you have to have that balance. So it sounds like, you know, that's something that, you know, even with the religious practices, that was something that you were having to find that middle ground of stuff that you felt honored, you know, your family and your culture, and then also the kid. And then Ollie, you mentioned that um, in the beginning, there was some stuff that you guys did that you didn't maybe feel completely comfortable with, or you kind of found that middle ground of stuff you could do for her. Can you like describe one of those things? Yeah. So I'll give the example of there was this medicine stick and, um, Biodad claimed to be the great shaman. So he said that this medicine stick needs to be hung right above Jay's bed. And that's why she's having these terrible dreams. And also to make sure that there's nothing underneath her bed because she's she's frightened about something underneath there, which there was nothing underneath her bed. So we had a compromise because there was a huge antler sticking out of this medicine stick. And it was very dangerous. It looked like a weapon, honestly, to me, but I want to respect the cultural beliefs that um, BioDead had and little Jay had, because nothing was proven at that time if, you know, if he was a shaman or whatnot, which now it's proven he's not. He, he has no ties to Native American culture. He was, it was all false claims. But um, so, yeah, this medicine stick, we're like, we can't hang this above the child's wall. Uh, the GAL, the caseworker said, yeah, this might, you know, this might be a possible like a hazard. How about we put it next to the bed? So that medicine stick, you know, ended up being by the bed. And, and that was, I think, approved through the judge. It had to go all the way up to the judge. And it was right next to her bed. And I, I remember even reading her bedtime stories. <laughs> And, you know, it's dark, it's at night, and then I'd lean over, and that medicine stick would come flying at me. Not flying, but, you know, I'd lean on it, and it'd fall on me and almost poke my eye out a couple times with that antler <laughs> sticking out. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I'm like, this is really silly. So, you know, I was like, I, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, I'm really tired of this medicine stick. <laughs> So um, I I pushed back pretty hard on that medicine stick, and um, eventually it did end up leaving her bedroom because I'm like, it's this is just not appropriate for a child, and yeah, it's a hazard. So that one was interesting. Uh, let I, me let you chime in. <laughs> I do want to jump in with one more thing. Um, I think the biological family did a lot of interesting artwork. And I remember one time we were gifted these neon spray painted different symbols. And some of them definitely were satanic symbols in a black light. And we were told to hang them in her room, which I thought was pretty amusing at the time in a four-year-old's bedroom, hanging a black light up 
with something that I think that you would find in like a tattoo parlor possibly or a nightclub. It was just, or I was like, oh my goodness. And of course, like that kind of stuff would give her nightmares. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So was there anything that you were kind of able to retain from her previous home or kind of stuff was phased out over time? We definitely had like special books and a picture Um, special stuffies, like those kinds of things that we would definitely keep because it's, we weren't trying to remove her family from her. It's just, unfortunately, a lot of the kind of paraphernalia we had was, was either stuff that she would tell us she was scared of or was kind of dangerous. So we tried to definitely preserve more just typical kitty type items in her room so that she could feel that connection to them with those pieces. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, you have all of these different cultures melding together. With all the different cultural pieces at times, I'm not going to lie, it was difficult. Um, So, you know, a specific example I can think of is when our little G was a newborn baby, I would say probably between four and six weeks old. At a visit, he was given crystal light, the powdered crystal light, and then another time blueberry juice, and it was put on his lips. And so like for us, we were like, well, is that actual cultural or is that just like kind of uneducated parenting, you know, thinking that baby's just thirsty and not quite sure what to give a baby when they're thirsty. And then another time, and this was, a, this was also a little difficult, we had to actually have a court order because our bio dad was trying to breathe his spirit into little G and wanted to give him some specific holy water in order to do this. And so our judge was like, okay, well, explain to me the process. What's inside this holy water? Is it just water? Is it something else? But he could never explain what it was. And so it was, it was just constantly like having to work with the judge and our team to say like, what is appropriate to give to a baby And what is appropriate to respect cultural and religious boundaries, you know, wanting to be respectful of those, but then also knowing like, could this harm our child? Could this harm, you know, their biological child? So that was something we had to work with a lot that, um, you know, clashed against our kind of modern parenting that, you know, we were learning about. You know, Natasha, when I was listening to Ollie and Brittany's story, at first I was very surprised to hear about the medicine stick and the holy water and how they had to navigate through that. But then on the other hand, I really wasn't because as a foster parent or a mentor, you really are dealing with situations that are unique and things that are going to be unexpected. And it's interesting too, Rachel, because they told me that their team at Denver Human Services told them that their case was one of the hardest that they've ever seen come across their desks. And we got a little taste of that listening to some of the challenges that they talked about and just the number of times that parenting decisions ended up going to court. And that's not very common to have so many decisions having to be elevated and decided at that court level. And I know we talked about earlier in this podcast that, you know, the difference of cultural differences between our parents as we grew up in a multicultural family. Um, And I think it's really interesting because you see it within their story as well, is the blending of cultures. 
And Brittany and Ollie have another challenge that they're dealing with raising Black children at this time in history, but also in a society that historically and currently is really oppressive to them and not being Black themselves, but trying to really arm and prepare these kids for dealing in a society that isn't always welcoming to them. It's been something that's been, that's weighed really, really, really heavily on our hearts and wanting to make sure that our kids grow up knowing their identity, knowing who they are, feeling really confident about their ethnic culture and heritage, and also just knowing that we support them, even though we might all look different. So I don't want us to be like the family that, you know, tries to keep our kids just like us and we don't explore, you know, who they are. You know, I've heard from other avenues that there's, you know, like white families who will have black children or, um, you know, Hispanic children. And there's just completely no, I guess, connection to their culture. And so we want to make sure just kind of from hearing those stories that we, we definitely are not falling into that category. We want to make sure that our kids have friends and have family that, um, you know, also look like them, that look black, that look white, that look mixed. And I think Ollie and I do a really good job of that. Um, we also talk to our oldest daughter, you know, she's seven now. So we talk a lot about like, as things have changed in our country, like with Black Lives Matter, we've talked a lot about that and how important it is for her to feel really confident as a young black girl and how much we love her and we support her, even though we might not have the same skin color, that she is precious. Um, and so are her brother and sister. And so we have a lot of conversations about racial injustice at an age appropriate level and how we can hopefully be change makers in our you know, community and just have everyone treat one another with equality and with love and have compassion. Um, and so that's been something huge that we've done. And we also really like to have our kids involved in different cultural practices and also have play dates. And we have friend groups that don't look exactly like us. Um, so, you know, we'll have, we have black friends and we have Asian friends and um, we have Hispanic friends. And so we really want to make sure that our, our kids feel comfortable in all different settings and they feel like they can be with others that look like them too. Yeah. And uh, I guess I could add on that too. Brittany does a really good job with uh, making sure that little Jay has a lot of good books that have kids of color. So uh, little Jay's into ballet and um, I feel like she has a lot of little ballet books that have girls that are, you know, a little bit more darker toned skin and I think that's important too, because you see a lot of these Disney princesses and mm -hmm. a lot of these little Barbie dolls, which, you know, aren't my, I'm not a big fan of those. They're usually white, you know, blonde hair. And it's, it definitely takes a toll on our, our black kids. Like it takes a toll on our society of people, anyone of color. And I hear even little Jay, sometimes she'll say, I don't want curly hair anymore. You know, I want blonde hair or I want vanilla skin. And those things are kind of hard to hear because I want her to, you know, love her skin and love the beauty that she has. So I feel like that's something that, you know, we do try to do in, in our household is making sure to show that 
that everyone's beautiful in their own way and that um, not just the white person with blonde hair is beautiful, but also the brown and the black skin with, you know, darker curly hair, even brown curly hair is beautiful as well. Just kind of driving that home for her, I think is important. Right. And especially I think too, with Colorado being so white, because there aren't a lot of examples probably that she can point to. So it sounds like you were really intentional in building a community of all different shades and colors and cultures. So I know too, foster parenting isn't as common among people of color as their white counterparts. So are there any expectations or misconceptions that you met around fostering from extended family members? We wanted our foster kids to feel like they had family, but we also didn't know if they were going to be permanent. And so that was hard for our family. I remember I really wanted my dad who lives in Texas to meet our kids. And he had a really, really hard time with it at first. And I remember really talking to him and and trying to explain, you know, well, like why, like, don't you feel like these kids whom we're raising need family too? Like they have had people walk out on them and neglect them and they need to feel loved. And I remember his response. He was like, Brittany, you know, I don't disagree with you. They do, but I can't sit here and give my heart over to kids that are temporary. Like that's, that's just too hard. And I remember thinking coming from my dad and I was like, Oh my goodness, that's so hard to hear because he would be a really great grandpa. And you know, my kids are missing out more. He's missing out on these incredible lives that he could be a part of, whether it's temporary, whether it's permanent. I mean, who knows? So that was really hard for me. And I remember Ollie and I constantly reminding each other, like, this is something that we signed up for. And we even had some of these misconceptions ourselves at the very beginning before we really knew too much. And so like, how can we fault other family members of ours for having the same ideas? And then some of my other family that lives in Texas, they were really excited that we were fostering because we have lots of family on my mom's side that has either fostered or that's adopted. So they were excited about it. My family on my mom's side is predominantly Christian. um, And that's how I was raised. They thought we would be raising our children as Christian, which I thought was pretty hilarious because, you know, Ollie and I are both Muslim. So that really wouldn't make sense. And that was difficult for them for a little while. I was so excited when our first foster daughter was placed with us, Jay. And I remember looking at her on the drive home in the back seat and staring at her every couple seconds in the rear view mirror as I was driving. And I was like shaking my hands on the wheel. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I'm so scared yet. I'm so excited. Oh my goodness. We finally have kids in our home after years and years and years of wanting kids in our home. And when I sent pictures, some of my family members were were almost shocked that she was black. Not that they are against black people at all, but I think they had kind of made this assumption that because I'm white, that our children would be white, even though Ali is brown. So to us, it never really made sense um, to have, you know, just white children. We wanted to just help any child that needed help. And so there was a lot of explaining of like, well, (laughs) you know, if there's children that are waiting for a home, we're not going to turn them away because of the color of their skin. Cause that's not how Ollie and I are. 
And so, you know, I would say some of my older relatives were a little bit more apprehensive, but after meeting our kids and seeing our kids and I guess having some biases kind of checked, they've come around for sure. They have. And actually I just went to Texas this past weekend with our little A, our littlest one, who's a little less than a year and a half old. And my family was just, they were smitten. They were so excited and just couldn't stop, you know, going on and on and on about how much they love her. So that was really, really sweet. Yeah. How about for you, Ollie? What was your family's reaction to learning you were going to be fostering? I have uh, two sisters. One ended up uh, passing away when I was pretty young. But um, my other three brothers, they have kids of their own and they didn't want to bring their kids around my kids. And I think it was because there was like that label, you know, you have foster kids, your kids are going to make my kids bad. So those are some hard pieces that I had to deal with. And, you know, we broke some misconceptions and, you know, things are a lot better now. But yeah, that was hard in the beginning for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It can be hard, right, to overcome those boundaries. But then that's so beautiful that you're able to like show them, you know, kind of what fostering is. How has being a Muslim family impacted your fostering? So when Ollie and I became, you know, certified foster parents, and at the time we had little G and J, we were a little apprehensive, like, okay, what is the community going to think? So we decided one night um, to go to this big iftar dinner, um, which is a special dinner to break your fast on one of the nights of Ramadan. When we walked in, the moment we walked in, I remember kind of holding my breath, like, okay, this is it. Like everyone's going to meet our, our two little ones for the first time. And I hope everything goes well. Everyone was so sweet and so loving. I remember at the time, little Jay was like attached to us. I mean, she was four years old at the time and was really nervous and apprehensive when it came to meeting brand new people. You know, she had just been placed with us, goodness, um, maybe three months earlier. So going to not just a small event with a couple, you know, ladies or some of my friends, this was like a big event with like 75 to a hundred people. I was really, really just trying to tune into her and make sure she felt comfortable. You know, we had talked to her beforehand about like, we're going to go and there's going to be a lot of people. But the second we got there, she just relaxed so much. I remember little kids were running up and, you know, around us and they were pulling our hand. Let's play, let's play, let's play. All of the adults, they were so kind. They, um, you know, all of our friends and even people that were more acquaintances that we knew, but we weren't super, super close to, they were so just sweet and loving. Um, it was really beautiful. And I remember a couple of my friends wanted to know what they could do to get involved either with being, you know, foster parents or providing respite or what they could do to help out, um, you know, if we needed like anything clothing related or food or anything like that. It was just really sweet, but it just was such a beautiful thing to have our community embrace our kids so openly. And they did that when little A joined too. I mean, I remember the first time we took her to a big picnic and everyone was like, oh my goodness, we need to throw you a baby shower. And you have the most beautiful, beautiful babies that God's picked out for you and has placed in your life. And it's just been a really great thing having our community, you know, just feel like they love our kids, just like we love our kids. And so it's, it's been great. We're 
What really stood out to me about Brittany and Ollie's story here is just how immediately supportive and accepting their religious community was able to be around their new family at a time too when their biological families just weren't able to right away. And, you know, that's not uncommon. I've had some experiences with that with some family members. So I can only imagine like how powerful that was for Brandy and Ollie to have that really strong community just come around them right away. So Natasha, who's been like your biggest supporter during this journey of foster care? Oh, (laughs) funny you ask me that. I think you know the answer. But (laughs) interestingly enough, it's you, Rachel. And what's really great is when I am feeling really frustrated, I know you're just a phone call away most of the time. And you can give me an outside perspective to the challenges that I'm dealing with and the feelings I'm having, which has been super, super helpful. And you also just get it because you volunteer with foster kids. You also, you know, work with moms in prison who have kids in foster care. So I just don't have to do a lot of explaining. And I also don't have to worry about coming across as an asshole, which is also really helpful because you get it that it's hard and it's not always easy. Right. I would say that, you know, when I come out of prison and talking to the moms there in prison, I oftentimes feel very like emotionally exhausted, very fatigued just in general. And I think it's so important to unpack that. Yeah. And I love how you bring up that even volunteering can be emotionally taxing because that's a fair point. A lot of foster families burn out, but a lot of volunteers burn out as well. What I've also found really interesting is the people that do actually make up my community in terms of foster care support. During foster care training, they had us make a list of people we thought we could lean on that would like be our village as we move forward as a foster family. And looking back at that list, some people who I thought would be super supportive and really there for us weren't and aren't. So what's been your biggest resource or source of strength as a multiracial foster family? You know, God and praying to God and making sure that, you know, we're able to seek guidance in that. Also our support worker, she has been great. And uh, she actually connected us with another set of foster parents that were actually early they're pretty brand new and um, they were able to do some respite work for us. So little Jay, when she was having a really hard time and we were having a really hard time and little G as well, they would take them off our hands so we could just have a weekend or just a day. Um, We even had another little foster girl. She was three and a half, I believe at the time. And she, she had a lot of trauma and there was a lot of um, fighting going on and, clashing going on between little Jay and this other girl. So they would take her a couple times. So that, that was a, that was a really good support that our support worker created for us. It was, it was nice to have. Right. Cause there's no way you can do it alone. Right. Fostering is so hard. And that goes back to that balance of like, you have to always be taking care of your needs as well. And it can't just all be about the kid and that's how people burn out. And it's, that's not good for anyone. So that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely takes a village. It it for sure does. Yeah, it really does. And of course, we've supported each other. We've you mm-hmm. know, leaned on you and you've leaned on me. Um, some days it's like I need to leave the house and just go do something for a while. And, you know, the other one of us will take care of the kids. 
But yeah. <laughs> Check each other in and out. We even have a phrase, banana pancakes. That's right. That means we're losing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You definitely need that, you know, to like tag team it. I don't know how people do it alone. I really don't. And we only have one kid. You guys have three. So I feel like you definitely have a leg up on us. And our kid is also a teenager, so she can definitely take care of herself sometimes. But even then, yeah, it's just like sometimes you have to tag team it. I totally get it. Even Absolutely. Then, yeah, a teenager can be that five-year-old again. That's true. I feel like I can also be the five-year-old sometimes, you know? So <laughs> owning that and stepping away when I need to, right, is huge as well. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I struggle with that. I will be the first to admit I struggle sometimes with my childish behavior when I'm upset with my child. <laughs> no, it's so easy to revert back, right? Or to revert back to, you know, the parenting you received. And sometimes it was healthy and sometimes not. So like balancing all of that. How have being foster parents changed each of you? Oh, goodness. <laughs> Never the same. Yeah, I feel like we are. Um, we were, we died and came back. <laughs> horses before with blinders on. I think this is the first time I've really understood white privilege, like from a very personal level. Of course, I'd always heard the phrase and I knew of it. And I would say, oh yeah, I know what white privilege is, but never fully understood until I actually had these three beautiful black children in my home, taking them out places and just seeing how, you know, our family as a whole might be treated differently from another family that's white or I'm treated differently from my kids, or my husband's treated differently from me when we're with our kids. And sometimes I feel like it's really like blatant and obvious and ugly. And other times I feel like it's not so much, but we definitely see a lot of, um, you know, microaggressions too. Like, can you give an example of a microaggression or even an aggression that you've experienced with your kids? And then how do you react to that? Or how do you deal with that in the moment? especially when they're there watching? I guess one really basic one, like taking our kids to the park and having, in one instance, having another family ignore us or like if there's a family that's on the swings next to us, them picking up their child and walking away, like we're not even there. And it's like, sometimes I don't know if it's because we look different. I'm white and I have my little black baby with me and I'm pushing them on the swing. To others, I don't seem white because I wear a scarf and um, things like going to the grocery store or again, going to the park and having others at times, you know, they might move their baby out of the toddler swing next to me that I just put my child in and they might go literally four swings across. And I'm thinking, okay, hmm, is it because I have a scarf on my head and I look like someone that scares them or that makes them nervous? I mean, I've had those comments thrown at me before, you know, um, go back to your own country. And I'm like, well, I was born and raised here, so I can't really go anywhere else. <laughs> so it's just like, it's all, the, we just have a, a family fusion. <laughs> I don't really know what else to call it, but it's, it's definitely, it's been interesting. And I really have to look at it sometimes with humor because otherwise I can get really frustrated with the way that our family is perceived and, and with the way sometimes we're treated. How about you, Ollie? How has being a foster parent changed you? 
Yeah, um, it's definitely made me a different person. That's for sure. Yeah, um, especially when we got little G, it was it was really hard to see this little baby just having such a hard time and his first you know days and weeks of life. He wouldn't eat any formula. He was just so fussy. We had to swaddle him, and we tightened that swaddle like I've never tightened before. We'd have to hold him upside down <laughs> and, you know, it rock nuts. him back and forth really fast. And this, these are all recommendations by, you know, occupational therapists, nurses, doctors. They say whatever is going to regulate, you know, his brain and bring him to this homeostasis, just do it. And, um, of course, within, you know, um, safety limits, we're not going to shake them or anything. So anyways, things that I would never knew to even do to a baby. And I thought that were, you need to hold a baby with the most gentle hands that you could ever have. And it was quite the opposite. And even the fact that when they dropped this newborn off with us, actually, I think we might we might have went to go pick him up. But when, you know, no one gives you any sort of information or anything, and it's almost too trusting. They're like, here's the baby. Do your job. <laughs> and we're like, you know, like, oh, my goodness. Like, a regular baby and, you know, a typical baby is going to be – you know, I, I know typical behaviors cry for they need their diaper changed, eating, sleeping, whatnot, not spitting out their bottle because they don't want to eat, but they're hungry at the same time, you know, not being so dysregulated, not withdrawing from drugs and all this and that. So it was it was a big shock. And I remember it flipped our household upside down. And Brittany and I were taking shifts just to sleep at night, watching Netflix on the on the couch in the living room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> holding, um, holding little G. And then when he finally finished his bottle after two hours, because <laughs> it took him two hours to finish, not even six ounces, it was three ounces of formula because there was a latch issue. And um, finally, when he'd finished that, he he'd was ready, sick. he'd ready to eat, be ready to eat again. Screaming for more. Screaming for more. Oh. Like maybe there was a 15 minute break, but that was okay. That's really difficult. But on top of that, we'd have to put him in a bouncer, which he's, it's not even recommended to put a baby to sleep in a bouncer. So I would lay there in the couch and I <laughs> have my right foot bouncing the bouncer because if it would stop, he'd wake up and scream bloody scream. murder. And there was no controlling him. Once he started, he wouldn't it was, Stop it was over. screaming, blood-curdling screams, poor baby. And at the same time, he's seizing. I mean, we thought we were the worst parents in the world. Oh, we, yeah. I was like, like, we have no clue what we're doing. We're... This is so hard. And then it actually came as somewhat of a comfort. The same foster family that we ended up getting little G from, they're like, out of all the children we've raised, this child is by far the most difficult child. And like this poor baby, like he already has this, you know difficult like he's he's already going through so much and he's seen mm -hmm. as a difficult baby and like we're talking about like this most precious and adorable like five week old <laughs> like it was it was really sad but we love him so much and we loved him even despite that when we were able to walk outside with him and get fresh air that was a game changer for us when we figured out how much he loved the outdoors and it's so funny because he's like such a nature enthusiast
Even at five weeks, that's cool that that part of his personality came out so early. I know it's, it's been amazing. So our kids are all so incredible and unique. And I think what's amazing is watching them grow and learn and develop and how much they've changed and just all the beautiful, positive ways that they've blossomed. And then us and like how we've changed. I used to be like, I'm an outgoing person, but I would be really shy. I wouldn't like confrontation. I would be um, more like on the meek side of things. And after being a foster parent, I am the first that's going to be out there advocating. Like I'm definitely a a mother bear, like my child needs to be evaluated for an IEP, you know, like she's a foster child. Don't you dare tell me no. (laughs) So like, that's been one thing. I feel like I've definitely become really strong, um, especially when it comes to our kids and making sure they have every opportunity to succeed. Mm, That's so needed, right? Because if you're not your child's champion, no one else is really going to step up. Absolutely. What do you wish other people understood more about interracial foster care since you're in that process right now? It's something I I definitely don't recommend for just anybody. You know, you have have to have a very strong-willed mindset. You have to make sure you're ready for such a commitment and ultimately know that you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the children. Mm -hmm. You're doing it for their sake to make sure that they're successful in their life. And ultimately it's hard to say, but the best thing for the children is to be with their biological parents, you know, even though, and this is the hard part to know too, is, or to even uh, realize it's even though that their parenting might be on a grade level scale, it, it could be a D minus, but as long as they're not failing, that's still a better situation than going through the system and and going out to adoption because that biological tie is very strong and it's very important to keep that biological tie. Yeah. Little Jay will bring up uh, her older sibling and um, she'll talk about her and she'll actually go through the whole, whole timeline of, you know, some certain horrible events. And I know that when she gets older, she's going to, She's going to have thoughts of, you know, why didn't my parents work harder to get me back or get rid of the, the drugs and, and, um, you know, love me more than drugs or whatnot, you know, just work harder for her. And she's going to think about that probably for the rest of her life. And it's, it's going to be very hard. It's something that she's going to have to work for too. So yeah, this fostering journey is, it's not for the people of the faint hearted for sure you have to be confident and there's going to be some strangers and some really obnoxious people walking around and, Oh, I like your curly hair and start putting their fingers through your child's hair. And it's like, no, they don't need to be pet like a little, you know, animal. Like they've had plenty of people um, mistreat them and put their hands all over them when they don't want their hands, all others hands all over them. So, you know, we don't need that, but our kids know when we're confident and we stick up for them. And I think that's really important. They're, we have to be confident in that. So Rachel, I thoroughly enjoyed my time with Brittany and Ollie. You can tell they really are a team and they 
meet all of these challenges head on and they can laugh while doing it as well, which I thought was really cool. Yes, I absolutely love the dynamic that the two of them had and just like hearing them bounce off of each other was really great to hear. Yeah. And, you know, their story also really makes me think of how the why of what motivates you to get involved in foster care in the first place, I think often has to grow and evolve over time. So, Rachel, why do you continue to volunteer with foster kids and bio moms in prison? Because I see the value of change. And I'm talking about the mothers because even if you're 40 or 50 years old, it's never too late to learn and there's always hope. And I see the value of that. But you know, Natasha, I have to ask you the same question back. Why do you continue to be a foster parent? Foster parenting has been a way for me to make something beautiful out of some of the truly hoard things that I've had to go through in life. I've been through child abuse. I've had young family members die unexpectedly. I've had pregnancy losses. I even had to have emergency surgery and almost died a few months ago, which is not an exaggeration. I mean, it's just been a struggle in a lot of ways, but I'm able to relate to foster kids in a way I wouldn't be able to if I didn't have trauma and have abuse in my life. They can see that, hey, I've walked through some really, really dark places in life and I've come out the other end. And so I'm able to just hold that hope for them and that strength that they can do that themselves. So as a bonus for you all today for sticking with us until the end, we have another story from a multiracial foster family for you. Aubrey and her wife, Laura, live in the New York City area and they are white women raising black kids. And Aubrey talks really poetically about what that's like. Raising black children as a white parent means I must continue to do my own inner work to bring my privileges and biases into the light so they don't do harm operating unchecked. Must deconstruct the ways that white supremacy culture has been woven into my consciousness and my practices and my relationships over the course of my life, and to avoid replicating that in our home and in our family. Must actively advocate for anti-racist policy and practice in the many institutions that impact their education and well-being, their schools, the child welfare system to use my voice and my privilege and my power to disrupt racism instead of co-signing it with my silence. This is every single day work. It's forever work. But that's the me-centered work and the work of any white person invested in anti-racism. But as their parent, it's also my responsibility to ensure that my children know and love black people and black culture that they have an abundance of Black role models and mirrors in all areas of their life, that they unapologetically love their Blackness in a world that doesn't. Being their mama means fighting fiercely to protect their self-love, their sense of pride, and their unbridled joy. Because their joy is an act of resistance. You can follow Aubrey on Instagram at Aubrey. That's the letter A, four H's, B, R, double E, to get a glimpse of her journey as a foster mom. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend. 
As always, you can find us on Instagram at Just as Special to share this episode and others. That's a wrap. Thank you to our special guests, Ollie and Brittany. This podcast is produced by House of Pod and made possible by generous support from Amped.